0: Welcome to the Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of the Just Pod. Today we have Ken Goldsmith, Senior.
1: <laughs> I'm just really I'm just really happy to be here. I want to talk about this. I nerd out on criminal justice. So
0: Yeah. I look to this. We're very happy to have you on the podcast today. Ken is with the American Bar Association and he is the Senior Legislative Counsel and Director for State Legislation in the Governmental Affairs Office. So we've invited Ken to join us today to help us have a conversation about policy to help those of our listeners who are unfamiliar with the work of the criminal justice section or just the ABA in general get more familiar with that, but not even just get familiar to understand how they too can help affect policy through the criminal justice section and through the ABA on the federal, the state, and agency level. So where I would like to begin is talking about just a general process of the function of the Governmental Affairs Office.
1: Sure, I'm happy to. And I think right off the bat, I want to just say, you know, the criminal justice section works, that we are able to implement so much of what the section is able to produce because of the quality of the members who participate. So those conversations and committee meetings, the conference calls, whatever it is, you might have some off comment to make. It usually ends up on Capitol Hill as part of a conversation, you know, one of our experts thinks so-and-so. So So we always appreciate people uh, bringing their expertise to bear but uh but just to really stress that it matters and that the section in particular has contributed. The ABA itself has over 2000 open policy resolutions at any given moment. We have a priority setting process. Criminal justice is almost always within the top 9 that we pick and that's for good reason. Public impression of the legal system is usually Criminal justice. But there's a big mystery of what happens between the time a resolution leaves the House of Delegates, the gavel drops at the end of the meeting, and then how does it end up on Capitol Hill, enter the hearts and minds of American lawmakers. Right. We receive a list of the policy resolutions as passed, as edited. There were quite a few at this past meeting as well. And we are then given sort of marching orders in terms of what agencies, what areas, what committees need to be made aware of this policy resolution. Each of the lobbies in our office have an area of jurisdiction. I'm criminal justice, and I will sit down to figure out what are the best times that this particular issue might be presented. We could just send up a mass letter and say, hey, look what we just did, or we can think about the times they're going to be talking about that particular issue. Right now, the First Step Act is absolutely everything, so the Policy 101 from the House meeting will be the first thing we'll address, and uh, already have sent a letter to that effect from the new ABA president to convey what our position is, or rather to present the questions and concerns we might have. Mm -hmm. And that opens the conversation. And that is a conversation that will carry on through the rest of the year. It will include subsequent letters. It may include setting up uh, email discussions or conference calls with congressional staff, with agency staff, to talk about what does this mean? What does this policy resolution mean? What do the other criminal justice section policies mean? And that resolution, and you can stop me if I go too long. I, like I said, I kind of <laughs> love this stuff. Yeah. But one of the great things is that the First Step Act itself was, I'll say, a broad-reaching bill rather than a far-reaching bill. It was just an, an interim first step, but it covered so many different issues. And as an organization, you're not going to be successful if you wait until the big bill is on the floor and being discussed to start coming up with policy. We had a lot to say about the First Step Act and other legislation, too. And that was because we had policy that was developed over the years by the experts on the individual categories.
0: I think that that's a great place for us to move into the next phase of this conversation, or at least where I'd like to follow up, is just talking about more specific examples of where the criminal justice section has decided to take action and work through the governmental affairs office to express their policy or their resolutions, their views on an issue. And we, our listeners don't know this, but the criminal justice section knows that we, had a, we did have a lot to say about the First Step Act, like you just indicated, how the ABA helped the First Step Act become what it was when it passed.
1: Well, and that's an excellent point because the First Step Act went through so many different iterations along the way. Some members of Congress knew we needed to do something and they suddenly bought in. After 40 years, they turned around and said we, we need to do something about the people in prison making successful transitions out. But they only wanted to deal with corrections and correctional programs in that transition. But if you talk to the people who are directly impacted and you talk to the communities that are affected, they're all saying, you know, you got to put the fire out. Or at least, you know, if there's a gas fire in the house, turn the gas off before you start fighting the flames. Are there ways that we can address the inflow of people? In other words, sentencing reform. And so uh, then Senate Judiciary Chairman Grassley and Senator Durbin partnered together, Republican and Democrat, at a time things did not work that well bipartisan and made this a priority and made sentencing reform a priority as well. The American Bar Association agreed with them. We have policy against mandatory minimum sentences. We have other policies with regard to handling of juveniles and so forth. And so we were able to support them as part of the community, the larger community, in what they wanted to see. The ABA has a unique voice that we're the only interdisciplinary That is to say, prosecutors, defenders, judges, academics, students, correctional officials, law enforcement, all at one table is a regular part of our work. So what we have to say, people pay attention to. So we were one of many voices that went up there, but that was the particular voice that we brought to the conversation. And ultimately, we're successful in making sure that the final product not only had individual things that we cared about, but included both sentencing reform and correctional reform, both. And so there was then a negotiation process over what should go in, what shouldn't, and the ABA was at the table with allies and friends identifying what were the largest consensus pieces that should make it into that bill and what might make it into the Next Step Act or the Second Step Act.
0: So now that we have the First Step Act, what is CJS members doing with the Government Affairs Office next?
1: They have been involved all along. We already had a process where after the First Step Act was enacted, there were implementation steps to take and there was a new risk and assessment tool that needed to be created. And there's a, there's a particular way that ABA entities can speak on behalf of just their own expertise. So it, it is truly the criminal justice section speaking as just the criminal justice experts on a given issue through that process. And they were able to use that process to inform what the Department of Justice was going to produce for a new risk and needs assessment tool, which is the last real corner piece to the First Step back that needs to be implemented before they'll continue. And it will affect 106,000 prisoners' lives. It's a big, deal. And so there was a sensitive time where nobody knew what the department was doing. They didn't know whether they were going to do it on time, but the criminal justice section stepped up in that gap and provided technical comments to help inform the process, which they reflected, appreciated, and accepted. I think we were pleased with that. I think, and then when the final tool was unveiled on July 19th, we went back and did an ABA letter. This was signed by the ABA president, but it expressly in the letter acknowledges again, that these are coming from our criminal justice section on this particular set of prosecutors, defenders, and so forth, where we raise a number of technical issues that they wouldn't necessarily consider as to how this thing is going to affect people as it's applied in their day-to-day life, whether you're a correctional official or whether you're a person looking to get out of prison.
0: Great. Thank you. That's an excellent example of affecting policy on the federal level. And we have some recent examples of members working to affect policy on the state and agency levels so let's talk about those as well first let's talk about an illinois state bill that came forward that would have essentially pushed for dna testing without informing the defendant if i'm remembering correctly. Can you give us more context on that and how CJS got involved?
1: You do uh, recall that correctly. And, and this actually was a really good example of where, uh, you know, in the governmental affairs office, there's 10 of us to handle all those policy issues. We don't have the bandwidth to keep track of everything going on everywhere. And this was a very typical case where a CJS member had heard about something and felt like it was something on which the bar really needed to say something. And that was the case. There was an Illinois bill that proposed to allow forensic scientists to make the decision for themselves as to when it was okay to consume a DNA sample in testing where there would be no DNA evidence left. Now, the current practice and practice under law is that if whether the defense or prosecution want to test all of the DNA sample, that it would be consumed, you have to notify the other party. You both get in front of a judge and you make those decisions. This was going to give it to a guy in a coat and that's, they're smart people and they deserve some credit. That was a really bad idea. And so because of that criminal justice section member who was talking with the public defender's office and other folks on the ground we were able to respond. And in a way that prosecutors too, I mean, agreed on the principles on it. We got our letter in, we sent it to the sponsor of the bill. Hey, we have some concerns about what you're proposing. Here's why. As well as to the leaders of the chamber, the bill died.
0: So let me just quickly ask as a follow-up, was that just to kill the bill or is that, let's revisit this and and maybe put something forward in its place that... Criminal Justice Section would be willing to participate in, or was that essentially the end of that conversation? Well, right.
1: We're the American Bar Association, and so it's very rare that we go in with uh, pitchforks and torches. We usually offer to say, "Let's sit down and talk about how we can improve this," and that's usually a signal to somebody that they, if they haven't thought about their bill, they might want to rethink it altogether. But sometimes they really care about the issue and will appreciate the opportunity to sit down. Mm-hmm. And this was a chance for us to work with the Illinois State Bar. Whenever we lobby on a state level, we always work the State Bar Association, and to really make sure that we're preserving the community in which they operate, as well as our reputation of being problem solvers.
0: Right. Thank you. So let's look at another example on the agency level. The criminal justice section is very focused on collateral consequences and Yes, collateral consequences and providing people with opportunities to move forward in their life and big proponents for diversion programs. And recently, the ABA has put a lot of emphasis on lawyer well-being and encouraging people to get treatment and things like that, should they ever be in a position to need that. And one of our section members noticed that the OPM agency was going to change a hiring policy to require the applicants disclose if they were in a diversion or treatment program within the last seven years and got concerned about that. What happened with that? Or is there any more context we need to know?
1: No, that's a a really good point. First of all, OPM is the Office of Personnel Management. It's the HR department for the federal government. And they have a form that they provide to all federal employees, as applicants, and to federal contractors that tries to pull out enough information so they know something about the individual, and sometimes additional information for legitimate national security needs. Sometimes these forms get used for other purposes in terms of whether a person should get top-secret clearance, for example, and so they have a reason why they would want to ask additional questions. And for this year, so-called optional Form 306, which is not optional, you have to file it, included this question asking, have you ever participated in a diversion program that did not result in a conviction? Now, this question comes in under the obvious policy concerns from the administration. They want to know something about the character of the person coming in. But boy, this is like full frontal on state and federal policies with regard to helping people navigate the criminal justice system, avoid the burdens of having a criminal conviction. This is something the administration supported in particular. This was part of the Jared Kushner, Kim Kardashian part. And so uh, we were able to convey in a letter that this was really inconsistent with that. There are very strong public policy reasons why we have these diversion programs. The whole point is that it doesn't show up on somebody's record. We don't want that of all things to be included. And we were also able to take the opportunity to further talk about our support for something called the Fair Chance Act, which would say, hey, while you're asking people questions, don't ask them questions about criminal justice concerns until you get to the position of a conditional offer of employment. So we were able to talk about the one particular issue that came up, but use it also to talk about the separate legislation, legislation which is currently through the House and has a really good chance of passage this Congress. But that was the nature of it. And again, this was a member who was alerted to something, saw something, brought it to our attention. You have no idea how significant individual lawyers' participation in the process really is, and we rely on it.
0: Thank you. It definitely goes against the general direction that policy has been headed toward and where the momentum is and we're just seeing a lot of different states working to create these diversion programs and keep people out of the criminal justice
1: system. Everyone responded with like really are we really going to do this and and they even acknowledged early on that they were going to drop the question and they actually reissued the same proposal as the first time dropping that question from it so that was just a sound win I think for everybody but
0: but well, it's not always a sound win, right? No, so sometimes no, take it where you go. sometimes we run into obstacles when trying to move forward policies. So as much as it's great to talk about these instances of having small victories or large victories, let's talk about some of the obstacles that members can expect or not necessarily expect, but can potentially run into when they're trying to work on enacting change in policy.
1: Sure, that's a really good question for a number of reasons. Uh, One, you know, we're talking about a Congress that has passed, I think, as of today, maybe 60 bills total. Most of those are renaming a post office or a commemorative coin. That's your solid win. If you want a solid win, rename a coin. Uh, everything else is going to be a bit of a heavy lift. And there have been very few other things. And that really reflects how Congress really works. So when you talk about obstacles that members run into, it's understand that we're going up there talking in a larger environment, a larger context, uh, 535 offices ultimately overall. Any one of them could have a problem. They're all talking to other groups. It's a lot of noise up there. It's unusual for something to show up on the ABA House of Delegates calendar, get passed, and get implemented the same year. It's happened, but boy is that rare. These are usually two, three, four-year campaigns. Uh, in the case of juvenile justice and delinquency prevention, that was 16 years. Uh, There are other places, too. The Department of Justice took 10 years to reauthorize. Higher Education Act is still in trouble. It has not yet been reauthorized. So you get the idea. These things go on a little bit longer. And then the other part I guess I would flag as a lobbyist is it really helps for us when we see the language that we know what it is the person would like to see. But it also helps if we have uh, language or consideration that helps us navigate what happens when an office says, no, we're not going to do that. Are we then kicked out of the process? Do we have nothing else to say? And when our policy resolution reflects, you know, sort of not to say plan B, that we don't want people compromising on what they care about, but when the uh, policy resolution is a little more nuanced, we're able to stay in. Sometimes those resolutions say, repeal this section of this bill in this year, and we're not going to get that. And So when it doesn't get repealed and they want to talk about compromise as problem solvers the ABA is stuck in a position of Do we still have to say repeal it you get the idea? Yeah. So but that's that's an easy one to fix Great.
0: So for members that are listening that want to work on affecting policy Maybe on a smaller level than reaching out through the criminal justice section or the ABA What would you encourage them to do?
1: I would encourage them to participate. I am always surprised by the number of active lawyers who don't shy from talking, who don't shy for taking a case and taking on a cause, who don't call their member of Congress, and it's usually talking to the 20-something or the 30-something on the congressional staff who's working on the issue, but they don't feel necessarily that that's for them. I didn't grow up being being a lobbyist. My parents were kind of embarrassed when I told them I was going to become a lobbyist. We raised you better than that, but the reality is they learned (laughs) what it is that lobbyists do. Everyone has a constitutional right to petition their government for redress. And that's really what's going on. They think it's something really left best for the pros. This is something that veteran members should be paying uh, attention to. What we tell them is, look, you're a member of Congress. They're already going to be talking to other groups and other people. So you may as well join into the fray. There is nobody more whom a member of Congress will want to speak with than somebody who is an expert and a voting constituent. I've been in meetings before with very friendly offices, and they have kicked me out of the meeting to say a constituent just showed up. You're top dog number one. And the third thing I want to mention is that a number of people find being involved with Congress or talking to Congress or lobbying even, it could be something that they hear about in the movies or TV, and they hear so much about dark money being up on the Hill, and they don't want to be associated with that. And all I would say back to them is that the cure for all of these things, including if you don't like the idea of the influence of dark money, is show up and participate. Increase participation. Don't hesitate.
0: That gives us a great overview of the process from just an individual to working through the section to affect state, federal, and agency level change. And so thank you, Ken, for walking us through all of that.
1: I'm really happy to be here. And I do want to say one last parting thing, if it's okay, if you'll allow me. I know you got a busy schedule today. (laughs) Um, That... The, the people who get involved are the people who decide the outcomes. The number of issues that I've worked on, I started off in the criminal justice section 25 years ago. The number of law students who came to the table, the number of new attorneys who came across a problem they ran into and wanted to talk about it in a committee meeting, who ultimately became the champion or the expert around a particular issue, is just so repeated so many times criminal justice section works. It is an effective place because people participate. And I just can't encourage your folks to do that enough.
0: Thank you. I would echo that to all our listeners. Get involved. There's room for you. You're welcome at the table here. So thank you again to Ken for joining us. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod.